Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. The Thinking Practitioner Podcast is supported by ABMP, the Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, and quick reference apps, online scheduling, and payments with PocketSuite, and much more. ABMP's CE courses, podcast, and Massage and Bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including Whitney Lowe. Hi, Whitney. Howdy, sir. And myself, Till Luca, thinking practitioner. Listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com uh, slash thinking. Hey, Whitney, uh, you do write for Massage and Body Work, and we're going to talk about one of your articles today. How are things going? Going very well. I've been off for a couple of weeks. I enjoyed listening to you do some uh, episodes with some other great folks around here. And uh, I took some time off this summer and was doing some roaming around in the Canadian Rockies. And very good to be back here behind the microphone again with you. So good to see you again and yourself. Likewise. Good. Just back from roaming. Also, I took my microphone with me. So I was, you did, you know, I was uh, broadcasting from the road a little bit there. I did that one with uh, Ruth Warner last time and we missed having you there, but it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's also great to be back. And then you and I are going to Montreal. Like I'm going tomorrow. Yep. For the Fascial Research Congress. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll both be there next week. So that'll be great to, uh, have that time together. Yeah, we may end up folks. doing a an in-person recording or something like that, which would be a, a first for us. Yeah, uh, we'll do something. We're going to do something yeah. around that because it's, right. uh, you know, you realize that I have only met you briefly twice in person. I do realize that. And I can't even remember when, I remember this you said like, it was sometimes and I can't even remember when it was, but it was like a decade or more ago. Yes, yeah. right. These yeah. were like at uh, AMTA conventions or something like that. Just came yeah. by and said, hi to you at your booth. Mm-hmm. So no, we'll actually get to meet in person. Yeah, and uh, I'm smaller than I look on camera. So am I. So we'll we'll have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I was doing this um, podcast with um, Allison Denny a couple months ago and telling her this story. You know, when I first started teaching, um, I really had to work at knowing my stuff really inside and out because not mm-hmm. only was I a small person, but I, I look a whole lot younger than I am. And when I was started teaching, I was in my late twenties and I looked like I was 15. So I have always um, had to use that as a means of, of compensating for the physical appearance. So, and it was, uh, it was funny a lot too, when I used to teach, you know, with Benny and he's just this big yeah. magnanimous yeah. presence, you know, uh, in right. the room and big tall guy and everything. So it was like, uh, two very different uh, perspectives there. That's that's great. Yeah, yeah. We uh, well, it, like I said, it's going to be great to meet you. And, yeah. Uh, no, you know your stuff, so that's a, that's a pleasure as well. Yeah. So speaking of stuff, what yeah. are we doing today? What are we talking well, about today? I wanted to talk with you about the sacroiliac joints and about the bones that connect the ilia, the big bones of the pelvis, innominate bones, etc. Mm-hmm. But not only do I love talking about that part of the body and those joints uh even though we already discussed it in episode three but it's like there's not there's never enough to say but you just published a cool article about that in massage and body work i got it right here 
Um, current concepts and sacroiliac joint dysfunction. I wanted to talk about that some. And then I am teaching uh, one of my principal's courses where we meet for four live online lectures about the ilionesi joints. And that starts a free intro on September 28th. I'll give more information at the end of the show, September 28th, 2000, what year is this? 22. Mm-hmm. And then the lectures start October 5th. But if you're catching the episode later, they're going to be by recording. Yeah. Okay. And then also, like yeah, that's, that's, a, I'm, I'm looking forward to this topic. I just, right here at the beginning, I wanted to give a shout out to Jeff Bramall and Bori Surani for doing, they did it like an in-depth kind of secret shopper review of my last principal's class. I didn't even know that Jeff was in the class. He took the class and then he did a whole podcast episode about it that I found by accident. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. I was listening to this nervously. It's like, what's this guy going to say about this whole course? Because yeah. like he advertised a review of advanced trainings in Toluca. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, here we go. Here we go. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, their podcast is called Hands at the Table. We'll put a link in the show notes here as well. And I won't do any kind of plot spoilers. You're going to have to hear how they reviewed our class. Yeah. Well, I'll look for it. I'll have to go listen to that podcast too. So Yeah. I was yeah. on the edge of my seat. Anyway, they did a good job of being really analytical and thorough about it. Yeah. So let's let's do that for the pelvis. Let's be analytical and thorough as well as experiential because I want to move a little bit. Mm-hmm. But what if we start with the anatomy of the sacroiliac joints, Whitney? What do you think? You want to start there? That sounds like a good starting place. Yeah. So um, I was going to talk a little bit about some key concepts of anatomy and mechanics related to this. And uh uh, we are doing something a little bit different today for those who've been listeners for a while. We are going to, um, this show is going to appear in video as well. That's the plan. And uh, so I'm going to put some stuff on the screen. So those of you who are listening to the audio version, we will make reference to some things that we're showing on the screen. We'll try to describe those as much as possible, but there will also be uh, links to the video version on our respective sites. And we'll there put that go. in the show notes and talk about that at the end yeah. as well. So um that is uh, the plan. So um, without further ado, let's take a look in there and see what we're talking about here at the sacroiliac joints. Mm-hmm. So first thing is we want to take a sort of a reminder of where we are. We are looking at the place where the sacrum meets the ilium on each side. And there is a, of course, left and right sacroiliac joints. couple things from bony uh, architecture that I wanted to call attention to. This particular image does not necessarily show this really thoroughly. And I think, Till, you've got some other images that will show this more clearly. But these joints are unlike many of the other joints in the body, which are smooth gliding surfaces in that there's a very rough and irregular contact surface here on the side of the sacrum and a similar rough and irregular contact surface on the ilium, which sort of meets each other and interlocks. So it's this interlocking sort of mechanics of the bone itself, not to mention all the other soft tissue structures around there. But that's a big key part of making stability in the sacroiliac joint is the sort of interlocking alignment. Consequently, when that alignment is somewhat off, and we'll talk about what might cause it to be off in other situations, this may cause some of the other uh, significant pain problems when those bony contours are not aligning with each other. It's pretty easy to see how that might occur. And uh, I'm going to mention some other things a little bit later on too about the high percentage of uh, nociceptors that are inside that sacroiliac joint and many of the other connective tissue structures around here that are highly and richly innervated that play a role in a lot of those uh, pain complaints that we see. Uh, 
So a couple other key things here too that I want to to highlight with uh, anatomical structures, in particular, the ligamentous structures around here. So you have the the binding uh, anterior sacroiliac ligaments um, on the front side, and then there are also pretty significant binding on the back side here. So this these ligaments hold this joint relatively firmly because it's a very important process of trying to transmit the body weight from the central core axis of the skeleton into the appendicular skeleton. And that comes across, of course, through the two sides of the sacroiliac joints here. So transmitting that weight from each side. And let's just uh, briefly kind of illustrate that, you know, as that weight's coming down here is distributed across these joints on each side, going directly across those sacroiliac joints. So these ligaments are holding those uh, that, that sacrum in position. Another image up here, just let me show this real quickly to highlight some of these major structures here. Hey, before you get out of that one, can we go, yeah. is it too late to go back to that? Nope, right there. That's So the, on the screen there for the listeners, we have a view of the backside of the body with Whitney's really cool software. And he's showing these massive ligaments around the SI joints. And he's drawn lines that show the spine's weight transmission splitting there at the sacrum and being transmitted into each uh, side of the pelvis, each left and right ilium. Did I get that right, Whitney? Yes, sir. Absolutely. And then there's strong ligaments all around those joints. And you're talking about the role those ligaments have in that weight transmission. We can really see that wedge-shaped uh, arrangement of the sacrum there. It's like a downward pointing wedge or the arrowhead on the bottom of the mm -hmm. spine. So you can imagine that weight pushing that sacrum down between those bones and wanting to pull them apart but the ligaments resisting that and loading from that weight bearing uh, function and really snugging that joint up. Yeah. yeah. One of my anatomy instructors in massage school spoke about this and the similarity to the architectural um, design of a keystone at, in a bridge, uh, you know, which yeah. the keystone is that very top stone that's wedged like this in there that holds the arc across, you know, like a whole bridge mm -hmm. across the whole pelvis like that. And then that wedge comes in there and holds those two things and binding them together and distributes the weight across each side, hopefully equally. But that's something that we're going to also look into here is that sometimes that doesn't happen equally. So, so hopefully, yeah, left and right sides of the arch. And there is some evidence. I'm going to go back and talk about alignment when you're done with your part. Yeah. Uh, but there's also evidence that, yeah, the equally thing is, uh, at least in terms of stiffness, is a, is an important factor. Yeah. So just to take another quick look here at um, listing us several of these other stabilizing ligaments in addition to the ones that we looked at. Uh, up here from the transverse process of L5 over across to the ilium is the iliolumbar ligament. This is like between the lumbar vertebrae and the top, the iliac crest almost in the backside of that, huh? Exactly, yeah. And while that doesn't necessarily span directly between the sacrum and the ilium, because there's such a firm connection between L5 and the sacrum, the iliolumbar ligament, which is coming in and attaching to this side of the transverse process of L5 creates a lot of, uh, or does certainly aid in stability with the sacroiliac joint spanning right across it there. This is another key one down here, the sacrotuberous ligament, which we see spanning from the um, sacrum down to the ischial tuberosity. So again, most ligaments tell you where they're going and what they connect by their name. So this is from the sacrum to the ischial tuberosity, big sacrotuberous ligament. And, nice. uh, so it's like if that sacrum's like an arrowhead, that goes from the point of the arrowhead 
at an at a perpendicular angle diagonally out to the pelvis. So it's like the lower end of that wedge-shaped sacrum. It's being held in by those big sacrotubus ligaments. Yeah. And you know, again, in anatomy books, these structures are pictured and shown as they are here as sort of isolated structures, but we'll talk a little bit more later on too about the fact that they really aren't isolated structures. And in fact, there's a lot of oh. fascial continuities from lower extremity uh, muscles directly into that sacrotuberous ligament. So tension, for example, in hamstring muscles can easily be transmitted through the sacrotuberous ligament to the sacrum itself. So, so there's lots yeah. of tissues around them in spite of what we see in the anatomy books yeah. that are part of that weight transmission or tension function as well. Yeah, Absolutely. One other one here we don't hear about quite as often, but also very important is the sacrospinous ligament. And it is going from the tip end of the sacrum over to the ischial spine. This is a little bony projection here on the side of the ischium, the ischial spine. Um, that is also one of the other major stabilizing ligaments. You can see it here in relation to the sacrotuberous ligament on the other side. So it is deep to that sacrotuberous ligament. So for our, li for our listeners, that would be, yeah, deep to or in front of, and it's running like almost perpendicular to the floor in a horizontal plane to straight out to the side of the pelvis while those big sacred tubus ligaments are running at an angle. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we also pay a good bit of attention to that particular ligament. It is one that doesn't get talked about a lot, but is pretty relevant for some of the major nerve entrapment problems with the sciatic nerve yeah. getting squeezed against that sacrotuberous, or excuse me, sacrospinous ligament. Yeah. in uh, Sciatic nerve, pudendal yeah. nerve, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah right. So saddle pain. Those are certainly uh, important there. So the other thing I, I mentioned a moment ago, just of very key importance here, because the sacroiliac joint has so many ligamentous structures associated with it and other soft tissues and connective tissues associated with attempting to maintain the stability in this area, there are a lot of nociceptors in here, which means a lot of sensory receptors that may be reporting pain uh, in a number of different circumstances. Um, but one of the big challenges, and we'll talk some more about this with sacroiliac joint problems, is those. Um, uh, it's sometimes difficult to determine, um, mm. are these structures the victim or are they the culprit? You know, they can be the cause of some pain sensations in many cases, or sometimes they may get uh, strained or irritated as a result of some other kind of mechanical loading on them and when they're the victim. So, uh, that's a tough one to figure out sometimes in terms of, of what's actually happening in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about that some in episode three as well, the yeah. kind of chicken and egg problem. Yeah. In the end, it's like, what do we do? To, what can we do to help? So I want to get to that as well. Yeah, good. So that's kind of a, a basic sort of rundown of some key structural factors with um, that SI joint. Um, nice. Yeah. Nice. That's it? Well, that's, I just wanted to stop there with some um, <laughs> basic stuff. We can go into some of the mechanics and, you know, mechanical things. Um, All right. Let well, me, let me go well, ahead and mention that. So before we, okay. before we leave this, while we're still on the, uh, on the screen here, for those who are watching visually. Yeah. Um, I I'll try to do like the sportscasters thing still trying to describe right. what I'm seeing. What he's showing there is also, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, uh, the other thing that I want to mention is, about motion in the sacroiliac joint, because this uh -huh. is a little bit challenging and confusing for some people to recognize. We mentioned this in our earlier episode too, that yeah. um, there's a, um, you know, a variety of different discussions of how much motion occurs at the sacroiliac joint and, yeah. and what's happening with the, the uh, sacroiliac region. Let's come over here for just a moment. Let me, uh, for those of us watching our visual indication here, I want to 
make a couple of notations about what we see with some of the postural challenges that people have when you have a pelvis that tips in this direction. Anteriorly. We refer to this as an anterior tilt of the pelvis. So the uh, anterior superior iliac spine is tilting downwards and the backside is sort of you know tilting back up. That's yeah. rotational movement there happening essentially so the pelvis gets tilted. Now, biomechanically, a lot of people misunderstand this concept and they say, well, this is happening because you're rotating this around the sacrum. But in reality, most of your anterior pelvic tilt is tilting around the axis here at the iliofemoral joint. So it's at the hips, you're saying, and more of it's at the hips instead of at the SI joints. Much more at the hips than at the SI joint. There is a slight degree of movement at the SI joint, but it's not mm -hmm. very much movement. It's usually estimated to be somewhere of, you know, less than about four degrees is kind of the average of what you hear in a lot, in a lot of the literature. So I'm it's bookmarking a, that as a different, uh, I have some different uh, numbers, but yeah, it's a small amount. Yeah. Um, you want to go through that? Talk well, about what your numbers when are? I when I started teaching this course, the principles course on the Iliad, I had to do, go do a bunch of catch up on my homework. So I went and looked, did a survey, kind of informal survey of all the different ranges of SI joint movement that were out that I could find. Mm -hmm. And they ranged everywhere from less than 1% to 18% in normal, yeah. sorry, 18 degrees rather, yeah. in normal people. With, with this is an interesting trend. And I think we also mentioned that in that earlier episode. Over the years, as measurement of technologies have gotten better, the amount of movement there that's considered normal has gone down. Yeah. So the, the, the four degrees you quoted is about the average or low average of what's said, but there's really decent evidence that people can range anywhere from one degree all the way to 18 with like some anomalies of like 30 degrees in gymnasts and things like that. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's a little bit of a geeky footnote. It doesn't even really matter the number in my thinking. It's still a small amount of movement. Yeah. It's a small amount of movement. And most, you can do it. We can do a lot more with our pelvis, tipping our pelvis than the sacrum does within the pelvis. Yeah. That I'm with and, and one other thing that, uh, that I was interested to come across when we were talking about this is that, um, that amount of movement at the sacroiliac joint decreases yeah. with age, as yeah. we do see in many places. But there, there was a lot of references that I saw to people in more advanced age having it be, you know, close to a, a fused joint that they yeah. that they really uh, had lost so much motion. That I don't know if we want to call it lost, but it seems to be one of those things that occurs naturally with aging is a much lesser degree of movement occurring at the sacroiliac joint as as mobility is decreased. Um, so when you about that. yeah when you when you talk about the uh, anterior tilt of the pelvis that's the motion of the innominate bones the the pelvis the ilium ischium and pubis together rotating uh -huh. around the um, femoral head but the uh -huh. tipping forward uh, and backward of the sacrum is mm -hmm. actually called uh, either nutation when the sacrum the top or the plateau of the sacrum tips in an anterior or forward direction mm -hmm. that's referred to as nutation. Mm -hmm. And if it tips so that's backwards, like, sorry, if that's, that's like if I arch my back and my tailbone sticks out posteriorly, that's anterior nutation. You're saying, yeah, the sacrum, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then counter nutation would be when it tips back in the opposite direction. So mm -hmm. um, now here's where this gets a little wonky. Again, we can get a little bit geeky with this. Um, I'm ready. 
Okay, so this is going to be more helpful for those that are watching the video, but I'll try to describe this as much as <laughs> okay, possible. Me too. Okay, so um, here comes the, um, uh, let's see, the, the illustration here again. If your pelvis is tilting forward uh, uh -huh. and, and rotating in an anterior direction like this, okay. so imagine once again, we're talking about that anterior rotation of the pelvis where the ASIS tips forward. Mm -hmm. If your sacrum, is relatively stable and not moving mm, when the within, pelvis within that bony range yeah. within mm -hmm. that bony range within yeah. the range that it has if your pelvis tips forward and your sacrum does not necessarily go with it mm -hmm. you essentially get counternutation movement at the sacroiliac joint because yeah. the pelvis rotates forward and the sacrum doesn't rotate so it's to be the same as the sacrum tilting backwards in relation to the the pelvis the key with this is that most of the times when you're talking about anterior pelvic tilt, it's tilting more than, you know, the four to eight or degrees or whatever that is. So at a certain point, it starts rotating forward and the binding of those ligaments are going to start pulling it forward with the, the whole uh, pelvis arrangement. So it's going to start tipping forward anyway. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't want to answer it, you can ask it back to me and I'll try. Okay. The question is, why would we care what that's called? What what it's called? Yeah. Why would we care that it's when you have uh, anterior tilting of the ilium, you have counternutation of the sacrum? Mm -hmm. Why do we care? I would say we care if we're trying to find some uh, causative movements that uh, are producing pain. So, yeah. for example, if we say like when you do when you tilt your your pelvis forward, this really hurts. It's the uh -huh. same hurt you get when the the sacrum yes. tilts back. Then you could say, Love oh it. well, that's because both of those are actually counternutating the the sacrum. To me, but, that's yeah, kind of so where it would be helpful is to to kind of precisely pick apart what's really the movement that's aggravating the discomfort. You totally talked me into it, and I. If you had asked me that question back, I'd hoped I would have given that answer too. So in other words, that it helps us kind of deconstruct what might be hurting. It helps understand the movements that might be pain evocative. If our client yeah. says, it hurts when I, in this case, when I look up, when I backbend, that really hurts down there in the lower back. That yeah. would be a place that we'd start to suspect. Exactly. No, actually, no, I said it backwards, didn't I? So like this, the counter mutation would be if I, it hurts when I bend over to tie my shoes. That would be painful counternutation of the sacrum. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the, yeah, uh huh. It would be. So yeah. the, the trick kind of is, and again, we just really can't measure this very well is how much, uh -huh. you know, nutation is happening or counternutation is happening. Yes. And then at a certain point, you lose that motion because the whole operation tilts. So even if there's some relative counternutation yes. with the sacrum at, at first, once the pelvis keeps rotating and the, and the sacrum is, even if it's tipped backwards, the whole business is going to tip forward after a Once certain we're point. past that one to 18 yeah. degrees, whatever it is, the whole yeah. pelvis ring tilts on the hip joints probably. Yeah. And so if there's, if there's pain, especially later in that cycle, I would start to wonder about hip joint rather than sacrum. But yeah. In any case, that's the way we use that information yeah. to start to deconstruct the painful movements to know what our target might be. And here's why I think that is so helpful is because there are so few methods of really effectively identifying what's causing a lot of pain problems and sacroiliac joint yeah. disorders. Yeah. Uh, many of the assessment methods are not highly precise. And so the more precision that we can get about certain types of movement things, the better we can get at kind of sort of identifying where primary problems might be. 
That is such a great cue up for what I want to say later. That's well, so great. Thank you. Shall we hear it right now? Well, we yeah, forget? that's the, yeah, that's the, and the evidence turns out to bear this out is that tests that provoke sensation tend to be a whole lot more accurate than tests where you're having to infer a problem based on position or, or movement. Yeah. So in other yeah. words, if, if you feel like something is out of line, maybe that's a problem, maybe you're not. And the tests that are built on position or alignment don't have a whole lot of inter-rater or intra-rater reliability. However, the tests in general that provoke a sensation on the client's part are pretty clear. We press yeah. it, it hurts. We know now something is going on there. Yes. And those tend to have a really high degree of reliability, both when I go back and check it later, but uh, also other people checking it. And then that also tells me what I need to work with. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm I'm favoring those quite a bit in my uh, my approach yeah. to this work with clients. We really are looking for sensitivity, yeah, even more than magnitude of movement in most yeah. cases. And that's that is exactly what most of the literature has pointed to is that a lot of those positional identification tests are not so accurate, and, and in fact, many of the pain provocation tests are not accurate by themselves. They're considered more accurate as a suite of tests that you do. Yes. And we okay, can- Okay, so uh, can I dig into that? Yes. In those cases that I've dug into on myself, accuracy is usually defined as correlating with uh, an image that we can take. So that can I feel something with my hands that cor that is accurate in the sense that it correlates with some, you know, a radiograph or an MRI or some image that we can take to verify what was assumed to be true for palpation. Mm -hmm. I'm saying my pain provocation tests are nearly hundred percent accurate in terms of they do provoke pain. Yeah. So I'm, I've redefined accuracy too, as saying all I'm interested in is what provokes pain. And if I can press on something and my client says, ouch, I tend to believe them. Yeah. That provokes mm -hmm. pain. hundred percent accurate right there. Yeah. And then the question is what to do. What does that mean in terms of the anatomy? I don't know. I'm going to stay agnostic on that, but I have techniques that can help work with that sensation. Mm -hmm. so I'm I'm targeting the sensation of the pain itself more than say the misalignment or the presumed positional fault or different things like that. Yeah. There was a, a wonderful little YouTube video and, and maybe we'll put this in the show notes too. Um, that's on the physio tutors website, which is a um, great educational yeah. website aimed yeah. at, at uh, uh, physical therapists and physiotherapists. And they're referring to, Laslett, who's one of the authors that have talked a lot about this yeah. process of clustering tests, tests for the sacroiliac joint. And yeah. uh, they said, you know, the Laslett has sort of zeroed in on four of those commonly used tests as being the ones that are most accurate. And those being kind of like the ones to, to focus the most uh, attention on for, do we get a, 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 a you know, consistent uh -huh finding from all four of those, or is it two of the four are positive and two are not or, or whatever. And then also um, there's another article, and we'll link to this in the show notes too, from Sadek, S-Z-A-D-E-K, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Mm -hmm. um, but they were making reference to uh, a piece that came out in the International Association for the Study of Pain as a diagnostic criteria for sacroiliac joint problems. Mm -hmm. And um, they said, you know, three key things would be necessary. One is there pain present in the sacroiliac region. Um, and the second one was, uh, is there a group of tests that can be selectively um, identified 
um, as causing problems in this cluster of tests. If two of the four are mm -hmm. positive, then that would be considered another factor. And then another, the third one was selectively infiltrating the joint with an anesthetic and the pain goes away. Yeah, um, right. Being the key sort of diagnostic criteria that physicians would use in identifying right. sacroiliac joint problems. Yes. The, I mean, there's, there's been so much work done in recent years on the accuracy question of making sure that our these orthopedic tests can be replicated, can be useful information to other practitioners, say a surgeon who's going to take over after a physical therapist, things like yeah. that. That's when it gets really crucial. Either you're doing a research project and need to be precise about what you're measuring, or you're interfacing with other practitioners who are going to take your information and design treatments or interventions or surgeries based on what they're hearing from you. In that, those cases, anatomical accuracy is key. Yeah. I'm still going back to like on my table, if it hurts, that's all I need to know mm -hmm. in, in the sense of like, now I have a therapeutic target Yeah, and I'm not going to insist it's the joint capsule or it's the misalignment. I don't, I'm, like I said, I'm agnostic on all that. It could be any of those, mm -hmm. but I'm going to work with the pain phenomena on its own through gently uh, resetting that response. Yeah. Say. And my understanding too, is that that might not necessarily mean localized treatment. There was a, a paper, I think that came out in 2021, the, yeah. about the stecofascial manipulation of um, treatment for SI joint disorders. It was talking about treatment applied oh, pretty significant okay. distance away from the localized pain. I think it was like, I can't remember okay. the measurement, maybe 20 centimeters or something like that. Yeah. Um, away from the site of primary problems. And yeah. this is again, emphasizing that a lot of times working on not necessarily immediately localized tissues can certainly be beneficial in, in addressing those kinds of complaints. Well, yeah. I mean, even like neuro neurologically speaking, the target zone on the spinal cord for low back pain is really big. It's like a cloud more than a spot. It's not yeah. one wire going into a junction box. It's a whole field. Yeah. And then in the brain, once it gets to the brain, it's also a big zone mm -hmm. of the sensory homunculus, say, or the insular yeah. cortex or wherever those um, you know, signals are targeting. Mm -hmm. It's like a big zone. There's a lots of crossover. So it's really hard to do the exact spot kind of yeah. thing, mm -hmm. except when there is a spot. Yeah. When there is a spot that, that you press and the client says, ouch, then we can work with that spot. I'm not going to presume it means anything other than that's a sensitive spot. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of the ILIA uh, and SI workshop that I'm teaching, when you push or pull on the leg or pelvis in certain directions and it evokes a little bit of that sensation, and we don't know if it's specific or general, and we don't quite know yet what's going to help, but we can trust that finding as a therapeutic piece of therapeutic information. That we can start yeah. to and just to kind of bang the drum on specificity and assessment once again, okay, you know, one of the other things that I want to say here is that one of the reasons that I like to try to, to zero in on trying to find uh, as much specificity and accuracy to some of these symptoms is because a particular maneuver uh -huh. that provokes pain Yes. may provoke pain for quite a number of, of different reasons. And yes. as an example, in the sacroiliac joint region, let's say your client is supine and you're doing some type of movement where you're bringing their thigh up towards their chest yep. um, and that's provoking pain in that region. Yep. That could be provoking pain because the hamstrings, which are connected to the sacrotuberous ligament, are pulling on the sacrum and irritating mm -hmm. the SI joint. Right. Uh, right. That may produce pain in the gluteal region and down the posterior lower extremity. 
that could yep. also be producing pain because you are stretching the sciatic nerve against the sacrospinous ligament when Absolutely. you do that. And that can cause gluteal pain and pain down the posterior side of the leg. So it could be causing pain yeah. it with from nociceptors right around the sacroiliac joint from that kind of posterior torsion of the ilia, anterior notation of the sacrum that happens when you bring your knee to the chest. Yeah. So it could be right there in the joint capsule. We don't know the target. We don't know the tissue at that point. Yeah. Yeah. But I know. I don't know where you're going with this, Whitney, but I know that I can use that maneuver, the knee to the chest, to gently de-threaten that kind of movement mm -hmm. and gently change someone's protective responses around that sensitivity, that pain. Yeah, yeah. And then I can also start to look in my book of orthopedic options and try other things. Maybe they've learned from you or from me, from other people to look at some of those other possibilities like the sciatic nerve or the hamstrings or yeah. the SI joint itself. Exactly. And so for me, it's always kind of a, a process of, of looking for patterns. You know, what kind of uh -huh. pattern is uh, illustrated here? Is this something that looks like a pattern of neurological engagement where that, you know, gets significantly irritated when the client lifts their head up? You know, a lot less likelihood that we're looking at a sacroiliac joint problem from tension through the, you know, sacrotuberous ligament if lifting the head forward is significantly aggravating that pain. That's a lot more likely to be a neurological involvement. And so, you know, just little pieces that you can add on there that can help you kind of zero in on what you're doing is, is I think, quite helpful in many instances. Super helpful. Whether you're treating empirically or analytically, whether you're thinking like, here's something that I feel and the client feels, and we're going to work with that, the empirical approach that I'm describing, or analytically where we're thinking, oh, what could be producing this and how can I start to list those out and think those through in a more linear fashion, yeah. more analytical approach. Either way, it's going to be helpful to be able to start to tease those apart. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Excellent. So what else have you got here? Um, well, we were talking about an anatomy. You've got, you've got some anatomy images and things like that. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks for that cue. And thanks for the the discussion there too, because it's the questions of accuracy, the questions of what we do with the information. You know, it's all contextual for me. It's like, what does, you know, um, why does it matter? And I love your answers. And what am I, how am I going to use those questions there? Yeah. What do I want to show in terms of anatomy? Uh, <laughs> I could talk about how complex this is, how many different systems uh, have their own models of the sacroiliac pain and how complex some of them are. Yeah, like uh, I'll just give a little preview of this one. Let me see if I can get it up on the screen properly. Okay, we're there. Okay, I I have on the screen a for listeners only audio listeners a handout made by a orthopedic student and an osteopathic student actually to try to remember all the different possible torsions or uh, rotations or shears at the SI joint. Those are all terms that refer to positional variations there that are thought to be they're functional or dysfunctional, but he's got a fairly extensive table that I had to try to memorize. And when I finally found this handout, I was like, oh my God, the key, the the whole, the uh, Rosetta Stone to understand all these different left on left, right on right, right margin, posterior, et cetera, variations that the sacrum is thought to do. So this is the way I was used to be working through these complex variations of positional changes. And then at some point, uh, when I had to go, as I mentioned in that earlier episode, when I had to go teach it in a useful way, I realized that I'm actually working in a much simpler way on the table. 
mm-hmm. rather than an analytical approach. I'm actually, again, looking to find out what is interesting in terms of sensation, since that's the motivator for most clients is like something that doesn't feel right. Does it move right or doesn't feel right? I want to find out exactly what I can do that reproduces that and then start to use techniques to help either desensitize that or help it be more mobile. Now, in the case of the SI joint, since there's not much movement there anyway, it's usually not about mobilizing. Mm -hmm. Most of the mobility, you said, like comes from the hip joints. Yeah. I almost think about the SI joints as a funny kind of sensing shock absorber. They take up a little bit of movement. So mechanically have a small function, a little springiness there, perhaps, at least especially when you're young. But more than anything else, they're probably giving our nervous system information about loading. They're probably telling us how the load is being distributed to the two legs or how left and right legs are moving in against each other. Yeah, joint. right. So I've shifted my own thinking from position. Can we get it unrotated or un- outslipped, outsheared, sorry, upslipped or outflared or whatever? Can we undo those things to instead, how can we make sure that every dimension, every d- uh, direction of movement feels okay? And that there's some sort of uh, tolerance for the movement in every direction. So in, let me ask you this question Please. on uh, sort of like the, the treatment processes that you yes. go through and the way you think about this, Yes. do you tend to, and maybe this isn't a, this is kind of like it's a bit individual, but would you say that you tend to move people towards a barrier of discomfort and see if you can push that barrier of discomfort farther away? Or do you try to keep those movement things within comfort zone and just sort of reinforce the comfort sensations and see if That's that a you can just like make those bigger? Do I find a barrier and push against it or do I stay way back from that and try to build capacity within that less challenging range? Right. It totally depends on the client's resilience, the rapport I have with them. If if someone comes to me with like an SI joint that flares up and gets painful on them, I'm not going to push it. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's like so more movement isn't going to be helpful in my thinking, probably, mm-hmm. or at least in the past, they've had things that flared it up through more challenge. So yeah. there's not about challenge. There's about calming down. And I m- might work well within that mid range of small movements that just begin to feel a little funny mm-hmm. and stop right there and have someone breathe and relax and essentially go through an autonomic or sensory reset around yeah. that threshold. Yeah. And at some point, Whitney, I want to, I want to do more work with you around the hypermobility question Mm -hmm. because it's such a puzzle. I mean, in the simplest terms, a lot of manual therapies work to loosen things up. Yeah. And so there's a paradox of when we have a situation that might be the case that things are quote too loose, Mm -hmm. how do we help? It isn't just to go loosen things up more. Yeah. It it may not be as simple as just going to strengthen it more either, Mm -hmm. but I still think there's a lot we can do. And that's a, that's a, a puzzle I'm unpacking for myself. It is. That's a, you know, a question that, ironically got sort of posed to me very, very early on in my massage training, like when yeah. I was in early on in school, because my mother has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Hey, and okay. So where there's you know, that connective tissue uh, yeah. condition where there's a lot of movement at the joints to basically. Yeah, excessive amount of movement at the joints, very weak connective tissues. And so all a lot of the things that we were learning about, like you make everything loose, like everything was so loose already. <laughs> Just yeah. like, well, what do you do? <laughs> you know, what are you yeah. trying to do here? But she would have soft tissue pain, and and so uh, I'm thinking like, well, why? You know, why why right. is this painful? Because it's so loose Not to begin because with. Because it's and, so too tight. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
And I think probably a lot of your work on the inflammatory stuff is is relevant there because there's probably a significant amount of that that kind of thing going on. But this sort of gets back into to a lot of these things have have a whole lot more to do with with nervous system responses in in many instances of, of what we're seeing. Well, it's the nervous system that's that's transmitting, generating, interpreting those nociceptive signals. In other words, yeah. the nervous system is responsible for the pain phenomenon. Yeah. So let's work right there is, is one of my points around that too. Yeah. Unless Unless it is mobility, unless it is a symptom, symptom, it just feels stuck. And no, it doesn't yeah. flare up. It doesn't hurt. And you know, and I'm like totally strong and healthy. Then it might be more of a mobility kind of intervention I would do. Yeah. How can we challenge it at the edges of where it moves and have mm. someone find ways to allow more movement there instead? Yeah. And you brought up something earlier too, just to to call attention to remembering that we are treating individuals when we do this kind of stuff and and yeah. the the significant amount of mobility that you might find in a 19 year old gymnast um and what you're going to do with them to try to yes. work with excessive hypermobility which you may not try to change that a whole lot uh compared to the 48 year old uh office worker or somebody like that um who's you know having some maybe more significant problems because of hypermobility and the the wearing away of joints and producing arthritic changes those strategies may be consistently different they may be really different and yeah. i don't even know that my explanations are going to be the right ones but i know that i'm going to start with them as a, a i'm not going to push the someone that moves a lot to move more mm-hmm. and even when i'm playing within their mid range to help de-threaten movement there I'm going to be tracking how they're able to relax into it. Are they able to breathe? Are they able to stay present with the sensation? Those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, right. And the same with the person that's like, doesn't move at all. And that's, it's more they're complaining about stiffness. Or I suspect, you know, you got a really big difference left and right. There is some evidence, one study, at least Damon, 2002, that says when, when people have a big difference between their left and right SI stiffness, they have more pain, mm-hmm. at least in pregnancy, which yeah. maybe applies and maybe doesn't. But it, like, let's assume it does. One of my therapeutic approaches is let's get the side that doesn't move uh, as much to move just a little easier, and then yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah. It's not just it's not my yeah. therapeutic approach. It's a really traditional one in manual therapy. Yeah, and, and you so bring up a really be... interesting point there too when you talk about the the difference in in movement capabilities from side yeah. to side because a lot of people don't think about this very much. But in essence, one of the reasons that the pelvis needs that degree of of mobility that it does is that mm-hmm. in our normal gait stride, for mm-hmm. example, as you swing your right leg forward and place it in front of you and your left leg is behind you, yep. your pelvis, your your um, innominates yep. on each side are rotating in opposite directions. Oh, I got a and visual so, for that. I got all right, excellent. That way, good. I was so gonna do this with my hands. That's you're gonna do it with your hands, right. but yeah. Yeah, I gotta try to describe it for the listeners too. Yeah. You're saying that if you, Step forward with your, which leg did you say? I said right leg forward, I think. Okay. So your nominates are doing that a little bit. Yeah. I'm exaggerating with this flexible pelvis man. I'm showing how the right nominate might tip along with the femur and the left Mm -hmm. nominate might reverse the other way. Yeah. So those, those people watching the video, like look, and you can see that motion at the sacroiliac joints, as well as the pubic symphysis, there's a Mm -hmm. little bit of motion occurring um, at each of those joints with every stride of our walking or running. Yeah. So, and we don't really, we, we so often think about these both pathologically and in normal function as it's either both tipping forward or both tipping back or, you know, right side tilting to left side tilting or whatever, but yeah. they need to operate in opposite 
movements in relation to each other during every walking stride. That's right. And not so much for range of motion, but so that you have shock absorbent capacity and so that your brain knows you're walking. That's part of the sensory panoply, sensory tapestry of, of the walking phenomenon. Like right now in your chair, Whitney and everybody else, if you just slide your right knee forward so that you're essentially walking your right sit bone forward in your chair, that's mimicking what happens at the SI joints left and right during yeah. the, during stride, that thing that you just described. Yeah. And then just to even it out, slide the left knee forward, slide your left sit bone forward. So you're walking on your chair with your sit bones. That sensation you're feeling is what you get, similar to what you get while you're walking, and what your, how your brain modulates walking, knows you're walking, senses what coordinates walking, all those things. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what do you call that motion, by the way? You're calling it anterior what? You know, when you uh, slide, let's say you walk your sit bone forward on the right, you're, you we could, you call it posterior tilt, did you say? Well, it would be posterior tilt. Yeah. If you're, the if you're swinging, swing the lower extremity forward and okay. that, that anomenate is going to sort of tilt backwards. So yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Tilt is a common one. Yeah. Uh, that's what Joe Moscolino calls it too. He had a cool article on that same issue and I called him up just to talk about terminology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also called torsion in some models. Is it called posterior torsion in the model I first trained in? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, though. See, now I'm not just doing that tilting yeah. idea. Yeah. And then, so what do you call, by the way, if I look at now the top of the pelvis and like say the pubic symphysis is spreading, like in giving birth or something, yeah. where the dominants are moving in the horizontal plane, do you have a name for that? Well, that? I usually, um, and again, for for the non-visual people that he's he's pulling the pelvis and we're looking straight down into the pelvis from the superior angle and yep. the two halves of the ilium are moving out away from each other or right. flaring out. And that's usually the go. term I have yeah. heard yeah. is inflare or outflare. So outflare when, out when they tilt out and inflare when they sort of are tipping in. So yeah, by the way, that generally, that doesn't tip, it's usually taught. I learned it as like, they're both, quote, outflaring or both, quote, inflaring. If they're both inflaring, they're compressing the pubic synthesis. Yeah. But it was a revelation to me to realize that that motion happens all the time, but at the same time. So it's a contralateral inflare of one, outflare of the other. Yeah. And that, again, is walking. Or if you uh, want to feel it in your own body, like slide your right knee forward. So you walk your right sit bone forward in your chair and then twist to the left with mm-hmm. your spine and shoulders. So that puts essentially an outflare on your right and an inflare on your left and on yeah. the, at the SI joints and then switch it out too. So you slide your left forward and then you left knee forward, right, left sit bone forward and twist to your right with your shoulders. That's going to do the opposite at the SI joints. Yeah. And that happens in walking as well, all the way yeah. down the spine. So while we're doing that, I want to put one other um, image up on the screen here for just Please. a second, because this is another one that is somewhat... Um, confusing for oh, uh folks in relation to that's lateral the next tilting. plane of movement that's the next yeah. plane of movement yeah so we've been talking all about you know tilting forward tilting backwards but there's also the lateral tilt which is you know the uh-huh. tilt to one side or the other and this so, happens frequently yeah you want to um well no you're showing i don't need to show i need to explain it verbally you're yeah. showing a back view of the pelvis with uh, a longer leg on the right side and you're saying that side of the pelvis is taller and you're going to tell us something about the movement that happens there at the anomenate, I think. Yeah. So we're going to assume that a person has a structurally longer right leg. So the bones of the right lower extremity, either femur or tibia or both, 
are measurably longer than those on the left side. And when that yeah. happens, the pelvis on the right side will, in a standing position, will sit higher. And you can sometimes do this uh -huh. with a visual examination or a palpatory examination and, and see the level of the thumbs. One's going to be higher on this side. And so one of the bony landmarks will be farther from the floor, taller. Exactly. Standing. Yeah. yeah. Now, when the the right side is higher, we call this a left lateral tilt. And this is where another place where people get a little bit confused. Mm -hmm. Of the pelvis or of the anominate? Well, anominate refers to, anominate again, is a, it means no name, which is kind of yeah. always thought that's interesting. So, wow, that's another subject, um, yes. One anominate, you can have a right anominate and a left anominate, or you can talk uh -huh. about both of them. So uh, in most instances, they're going to sort of tilt together. So the, the right one is going to be higher. It's going to cause the whole structural thing to sort of tilt more to the left side. So that's why it's called a left lateral pelvic tilt. But I guess I guess what I'm saying is, are you describing this now as movement at the SI joint or somewhere else at the hip joints? Well, it's really movement. It's not so much movement as it is the way Position. forces have to be mm -hmm. distributed. Because when this leg is longer, the femoral head pushes up against the top margin of the acetabulum and pushes the whole thing higher. So that's just a structural position, a static positional movement that's going to make that higher. So high on the right side is a left lateral tilt. Okay. I always like to think about this as if the pelvis is a bowl of water, yeah. it's going to spill out to which side. And yeah. when the right side is high, it spills to the left. And so uh -huh. we call that a left lateral pelvic tilt. Okay. Yep. Now you're smiling. You have something you're going to add in there. <laughs> I'm like the cat that ate the canary. I'm just waiting. <laughs> yeah, right. Keep going. This is good. You're okay. saying that that's called that uh, the movement on of that in uh, one side of the pelvis, the anominates on the right side would be a, what did you call that again? So that would be a left lateral tilt if the left right side is high. Lateral higher. tilt. Yeah. If the, yeah. okay, I have the opposite terminology, but go ahead. That's okay. Well, no, explain it to me there. I do, I follow Diane Lee, who say on the right side, if the right sit bone gets wider and the ASIS gets narrower, that's a medial uh, flexion, uh, medial flexion, medial side flexion, she calls it. Okay. So that would be something different because what oh, we're talking about. what you're talking about? I thought no, that's what you're talking we're about. We're talking about the entire anominate is getting lifted ah. in a superior direction. You're talking about upslip or a, a slot translation at the SI joint. Yeah. Okay, right. gotcha. Now, so okay. we talk. There's shear forces, so a sliding force at the SI joints, probably on both sides because one side is getting lifted higher than the other side. Yes. So that's what produces unequal forces on the SI joint. This is the kind of thing that produces significant SI joint pain. You know, when you have somebody who says like, "Oh yeah, I just started this running regimen and I'm running," you know, on the side of the road and you know, the road is domed and they have one leg longer than the other. And on one side of the road, when they're running, they're just an excruciating pain in their SI joint because their long leg is on the short side of the road. And it's really exacerbating that lateral tilt force. And then they could turn around and run in the opposite direction on that side of the road. Like, oh, now that feels really good. You know, because be now their test. long leg is on the long side or on the longer um, side of the road. Yes. So, uh, that's just uh, an interesting thing with the lateral. It tilt. is. Yeah. It is. Okay. So, but you're talking about, you're not talking about tilt. You're talking about upslip, I thought. Well, some people. Never mind. Yeah. Never mind. Let's not get caught up in the words because I want to talk about longer leg. Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. So longer legs uh, are again. You just you just beautifully articulated the conventional view of what a longer leg could how it could manifest as symptoms. I would posit that there's a lot of other things that could explain those symptoms too, even if one leg was structurally longer than the other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So someone could have feel more comfortable running on a crown road in one direction the other way, even just because their SI joints they can't adapt in one way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. It or is more sensitized in one way, you could yeah. say. Yeah, absolutely. And with a longer bone on one side, a structurally longer leg, the sacrum is being asked to adapt asymmetrically, the mm-hmm. SI joints, either left and right. Yeah. And so the most help I can give is to help them be more adaptable, like them being less sensitized to that yeah. adaptation they're doing. Yeah. The other point that I wanted to make about this, and let me come back over here to this image yes. here for just a second, is where we run into some problems with this is in trying to determine causative factors on that yes. because sometimes people will put a person on the table and you know pull their ankles towards them and look and say like, oh, you've got one leg longer or shorter than the other. So let's say in this instance, a person, you put them supine on the treatment table and then you, you know, pull their ankles towards you yep. as a practitioner and you look and the right side looks longer than the left side does. Okay, so we're on right. the treatment table. Right side looks longer than the left side does. And you say to I'm that person, you. oh, you've got a short left leg and a longer right leg. Mm-hmm. Because, and then what you do is say, well, you need to put a heel lift in your shoe so that can make those lengths equal. But what might be occurring with that individual is not that the right leg is structurally longer, but back over here, and let's do this really quick from... Uh, our little drawing, our quadratus lumborum over on this side, on the left side, is uh-huh. hypertonic and pulling that ilium in a superior direction, causing a lateral tilt. And when you put that person supine on the treatment table and look at their legs, this left side is going to look shorter than the right side. And if you put a heel lift under that short side, when this is a functional leg length discrepancy as opposed to a structural one, you actually exacerbate or make that problem worse. And that could, you know, aggravate somebody's SI joint pain significantly. I didn't even let you make your point before I was giving alternatives. So that, yeah, your point is there that it could be a functional, uh, functionally shorter leg rather than a structurally shorter one. The explanation you gave of quadratus tight on the shorter side would be right along with a, uh, say a a biomechanical model that has tissue tightness as the causative factor mm-hmm. for those differences. And of course, we got to assume that people using orthotics or prescribing them for sure are taking these things into account and their models are much more complex than the one we're yeah. describing here. Yeah. On uh, on another From another point of view... Uh, there are many things other than the QL say, and, you know, someone might go say, let me go work now with the QL on that side to see if I can get that hip to drop. I've heard those kind of treatment approaches posited as well. And we actually do some of that kind of thing in our sogoliosis work as well. Yeah. Uh, there's so many things that could be responsible for one hip showing higher or mm-hmm. functional leg length discrepancy. Yeah. And, uh, I just got to say, I, again, I go, I go for, I do go for movement more than position, even mm-hmm. in that case. 
Yeah. Is it, can the left leg lengthen mm-hmm. as much as the right leg? And then if it can't lengthen, what can I do to help it be willing to lengthen more comfortably? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it might include QL, it might include different things. Yeah. Include who knows what, transversus, latissimus, gluteus, things that they do at the knee. What I have to ask before I can pull on their leg. There's a lot of stuff, factors there that could be a part of that left leg's willingness to lengthen. Yeah. Example. And let's just highlight too, when you talk about the left leg lengthening, we're not actually lengthening a person's leg, just so everybody understands what we're talking lengthening about. Lengthening is a movement more yeah. than a static situation, static right. condition. Yeah. yeah. Being willing to get longer. Yeah. They're not the rubber stretchy gumbies that we're going to lengthen their At the moment, their limbs. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But though this, this is an example, not only are positions and bony terminology is complicated, but we start to talk about the pelvis in language that combines position and movements and isn't yeah. always clear like a tilted pelvis is a movement terminology that describes a position yeah and so that's some of the confusion you and i are just running into as well but it's it's so important to tease those apart if you want to get really methodical about it and it, it does inform our treatment approaches too that if i assume that that left high left hip is being pulled up by a tight uh ql that's a different thing than thinking, okay, so it can't drop in, mm-hmm. in walking or whatever. And then yeah. how could I help it drop? And there might be lots of things that could help it be willing to drop. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. where where do where, we go from here? You got other where things do we go from here? Yeah. Well, there's that last plane. I just should do one more thing. We talked about like the, you know, what I call torsion, the anterior posterior tilt. Mm-hmm. We talked about uh, nutation of the sacrum. We talked about inflare, outflare. We didn't talk about, I mentioned the name lateral side bending yeah, of the pelvis. You said the whole pelvis could go up and down with a leg length. But if you scoot yourself over listeners and co-host to the edge of your chair, if your arms allow Mm -hmm. that, you can get like one sit bone off the chair or you can turn sideways in your chair. So you hang one sit bone off your chair and the others on that. That's putting that kind of force through your pelvis in the frontal plane. Mm-hmm. the coronal plane, like one uh, anomaly is trying to outflare, you could say, and it's trying to inflare. And that's such an important, uh, do it on the other side too. So let the other sit bone hang off. Mm-hmm. This is great, by the way, these these self-care uh, possibilities are, were inspired, I learned them from uh, the work of Richard Dontigny, who's a physical therapist who specializes in SI joint stuff. And then I recently used a couple of his, come back up on your chair if you're not there, used a couple of his illustrations and articles in massage and body work and went and found him in an assisted living facility in Bozeman, Montana, where he was so delighted to hear from someone still reading his work. And we had a fun time talking about his illustrations and the the ideas that he used, which you can see in those articles. But he was he was a pioneer and really using these kind of self-care ideas of that I just showed you hanging your things off the chair or yeah. bringing your knee to your chest, like you described to help people manage their own SI joint discomfort. Yeah. Pain. Right. But early on, he wasn't saying let's mobilize it. He's saying, let's just, let's make sure that movement's comfortable. Do it mm-hmm. both directions. He would say do both sides. Yeah. It wasn't like correct the position. It was like more like let's mobilize it and help it be more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember coming across some of his work and writings too, that were in, um, uh, Leeming's movement yeah. stability and and is it movement stability and low back pain? Is that the title of that? 
because that's yeah we can look that up no but just it's right he vlaming yeah. you know went and dialed it down a lot more precisely yeah but don tigney was one of those pioneers who was saying here's a bunch of stuff that just really seems to help yeah mm. yeah yeah well that's that's pretty much i think our our high points huh we probably like lost uh the right percentage of our audience by now i think so probably <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations to the survivors who made it this far. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. But um, as as you can see, lots and lots of things to dig into. And until you're going to dig into that in your uh, upcoming online class, again, your your principles series class, I'll let you um, plug that Pitch one more that. time here as we like. All yeah. right. Well, I'm going to plug it because I'm going to, like we mentioned before we went on the air, I'm going to invite you to come give a little guest spot there. And we might even bring out this podcast as some as an example and like you know maybe cook it down even yeah shorter version because uh that Ilya and SI joints class it's live online there's four lectures they happen every two weeks you can be there live and ask questions you can go to the small groups where we discuss them or not those are optional you can actually uh, take a client and show us turn on your camera and show us working on them and we will coach you individually as a part of that class or not that's optional too but the whole price is pretty affordable and it's based around those four live online lectures that happen every two weeks, starting October 5th, 2022, or later by recording. The free intro is on September 28th, optional, but it'll give you a sense of what the class is like. It's one of our principles courses where we're really trying to take people to the next step in their work and understanding of the principles behind what they're doing and how we use that in our approach as well. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds like a great thing. Yeah. Advanced yeah trainings.com if you want to go look it up now but otherwise check out the show notes uh should i go ahead with the closing sponsor yes i think that's probably we'll we'll do a, a wrap up here for today i think that was a, a great deep dive into, into these things <laughs> here so so that's our sponsor our closing sponsor is handspring publishing who's been with us from the beginning and really from the beginning of my publishing career because when i was looking for a publisher for a book, I was fortunate enough to have had two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring, which at that time was just a small publisher run by four people out of Scotland who loved great books and loved our field. And to this day, I'm glad I chose to go with them. Handspring is not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share with you, the Advanced Myofascial Technique series, but their catalog has emerged and persisted as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. And note that Handspring was recently joined with Jessica Kingsley Publishers' Integrative Health Singing Dragon imprint, where their amazing impact continues. So you can head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check on their list of titles and be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. So thank you again very much, Handspring. And we would like to say a thank you to all of our sponsors and of course to you, our listeners as well. You can stop by our sites for show notes, uh, hand out transcripts there, any extras. Um, you can find video. that stuff. Uh, yes, a video on this one. Wow, mm -hmm. true. Uh, you can find this one over at academyofclinicalmassage.com and Till, where can people find that for you? Advanced-trainings.com is my site where we'll put this uh, episode's video and audio and transcript. If there are questions or things you want to hear us talk about on the podcast, just email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on, on social media. I'm at Till Luca any, on all forms of social media 
Where are you, Whitney? Uh, most days I can be found on social media under my name as well. Also uh, at Whitlow over on t- uh, Twitter. So some form of that can help find me. Mm-hmm. Um, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help other people find the show. That is quite important, actually. And mm-hmm. you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. Please do share the word, uh, tell a friend, and thank you again so much for taking some time out to listen to us. We hope we uh, maybe enriched your sacroiliac understanding a little bit, and you can help some other folks out there who are in need of your help as well. Indeed. Thanks for hanging with me, Whitney. Great to be with you once again, sir, and we'll be back again in just a couple weeks on another deep dive into some fascinating, enriching topic there. 